turn to Romans chapter 14. So I'm doing up to the first full stop in verse 13. And my introduction is, I would like you to consider a game of snooker. Where you have different colored snooker balls which go around the table and the snooker balls bump into each other occasionally. There's one picture. Here's another picture. It's mashed potato. Mashed potato tends to stick together in dollops. A dollop of mashed potato. And if you have those two thoughts, I would like to add to that that the purpose of Jesus Christ is not just to save many not just to produce many saved individuals, but to produce a whole new community. In other words, the purpose of Jesus Christ is not to produce a group of people who bump into each other occasionally, like snooker balls, but to group, produce groups of people that stick together like mashed potato in dollops. Uh, for the word dollop, read church. That's what churches are supposed to be. Dollops of Christians that are tasty and nutritious and stick together. That is the vision of the Bible for the purposes of God. And that's what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 14. Let's look at the context. It's called Romans, meaning Paul's letter to the Romans or Paul's letter to the Roman Christians or Paul's letter to the church in Rome and like all churches it is an individual church with its own particular features uh, it includes oh we've got squeaking we've got uh, we've got Jews in the church people who are Jewish who've been converted to Jesus Christ We've got Gentiles in the church who have been converted to Jesus Christ. This is clear from all the things that Paul has been saying all the way through. And these two groups of people are faced with particular temptations as they think about each other by virtue of their background. The Jews know the law of Moses, they know the food laws, they know kosher foods, they know the times and seasons, Passover, all the different feasts, the Jewish feasts, and they are tempted to look at the Gentile Christians and say, look at them, they are so lax. They don't keep the food laws, they don't worry what they eat, throw things on the floor and they'd eat it. They're lax, they're sloppy, they're slapdash, and the Jewish Christian is tempted to look at the Gentile Christian and judge that Christian and say they're very substandard. And the Gentile Christian is also tempted to think things. They're tempted to think about the Jewish Christians, look at them, they're rather obsessive. You know, they're always asking what's in this food, things like that. They, they have their law, but they take it to the nth degree, and they, we would say they're legalistic. 
They've got an unhealthy interest in rules and regulations. And they're scrupulous. Now, scrupulous in this sense, I mean they have scruples. They are troubled by things, and the Gentile Christian would say, that normal people wouldn't worry about. Uh, they're worried about where the foods come from. And they're worried about things like that. And the, Jew, uh, the Gentile Christian is therefore tempted to look down on his or her Jewish brother or sister and say, look at them. You know, they haven't got their act together. They're not really free. They're not really what Christians ought to be. And that will give you an idea of the context that Paul is speaking into. And even though it may be more complicated than that, I mean, it may be that some of the Gentiles had been uh, converted to Judaism before they became Christians. All sorts of complications might be in there. But that gives you the basic idea. And the question that Paul is addressing is how can these very different people with different mindsets, different ideas, how can they function together and especially how can they worship God together? Have a look at Romans chapter 15 verse 5 and 6. Chapter 15 verses 5 and 6 which is what he's aiming for. He says, 15, 5 and 6, he says, may the God who gives encourage, uh, endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to be together following the Lord Jesus and with one heart and one mouth glorifying the God and Father. So I want you to be together as you worship, as you live, as you function. And he goes on in verse, the following verse to say, accept one another. And that's what we'll be looking at in these next few weeks. And I want to say that even though churches nowadays are not usually divided in terms of Jewish background, Gentile background, there has nevertheless ever since been temptations upon the church of Jesus Christ to division, to judgmentalism, if that's the word, of looking down and judging people ever since and I think if you have thought about it at all, you'll find that same temptation in your heart to think uh, wrongly of other Christians. And if that grows and develops, then you have uh, a breakup of the church, and that is what Paul is desperate to prevent and to say, we want the churches to be like the dollops of mashed potato that stick together. That's the context. So let me make a couple of points and then look at four principles. So my first point is that all of Romans 14 and 15 takes place within agreement about the fundamental points of the gospel. He's not saying accept somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins because that doesn't really matter. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying accept somebody who is not sure whether Jesus rose from the dead. That's fundamental. He, he says, no, we've got to be clear about that. He is agreeing within the fundamental, within agreement on the fundamental points of the gospel. So he's already, you see, written the first 13 chapters in which he's talked about those things. So for example, we could say he is not putting up for negotiation uh, the universal problem of sin before the creator. We've all agreed on that already. So for example, in chapter one, verse 18, we're all agreed that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So we're agreed on that. We're agreed, are we not? And even as we sit here this morning, we're agreed we're sinners, uh, that we all need the, um, the forgiveness of God because all have sinned, as he says in chapter three, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Jews have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and you are in one group or another and you would be included. And would you agree with that? That I've come here into a Christian assembly and a Christian assembly assembles on the basis that I'm a sinner. So that's one of the things they would already have agreed and then he would, we, they would already have agreed that the atonement, bringing me back into relationship with God is through the cross of Christ alone. So for example, chapter three, verse 24, uh, he says, we all have sinned and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. And we're agreed on this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a redemptive sacrifice for our sins. He achieved what was necessary. He did it. There's no other place that we could go and find the same benefit. No one else died on the cross for our sins. No other religious teacher has ever done that. It's only through the Lord Jesus. So we'd be agreed on that, and we'd be agreed on that this morning, would we? No answer. Yes, I think we would, yes. And things like that. The main points of the gospel are already agreed. Now, as we go down through church history, it's become clear at different points that different things have become fundamental or different things come into prominence as fundamental and there are different ways of summarizing the main points of the gospel. You can summarize them in a quite a short statement or a longer statement or a very, very long statement. Uh, but of course if you make it very, very long then you probably go beyond, beyond the fundamental points into some more particular points. But uh, we belong to the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, the FIEC, and that has what seems to me to be a very wise choice of fundamental points. They call it the doctrinal basis. So basis meaning fundamental, and doctrine meaning what is taught, what is believed. So if you were to make a list, you would include things like, we believe in God, 
We believe that he made everything. Uh, We believe that he is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We would say we believe something about humankind, about the sinfulness, the universal sinfulness of humankind. We might say something about being made in the image of God. It depends how far you want to go. We'd say something about Jesus Christ, that he is truly God and truly man, that he was um, born of the Virgin Mary, that he's without sin, that he died on the cross and is raised again. And we'd probably include something about the atonement doctrines to be clear what we mean by he died for sins. He didn't die in a random, pointless death. He died in a purposeful death in which God poured on Jesus Christ the wrath and the judgment that we deserved and he took it instead. So Jesus died in a punishment fashion and he, whatever it was that we would have suffered, Jesus Christ suffered instead. It's a substitution. So we would say something about the atonement doctrines and then we would say how does that come into my life? We would talk about justification by faith which is what Paul was talking about how can I be put right with God is it by working hard by doing my best well Paul says it's radically different from that we are put right with God by believing in what Jesus Christ has done it's an amazing statement but that's what the Christian message says and then if we were thinking of fundamental points we'd probably say something about being born again so there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't a born-again Christian because Jesus said, you must be born again. And there is a supernatural change in the life of a believer. Uh, you might not always be able to identify the exact moment, but there's no such thing as a Christian who hasn't experienced the new birth. We might say something, if we were looking at basic fundamentals about the new birth leading to an ethical life and the fact that if we're not living uh, in new obedience, not perfect obedience, but new obedience, then there's a bit of a question mark over whether we're really Christians. And we might say something about the end of the world, the coming of Jesus as judge to judge, the prayer book says, the quick and the dead. What that means is the living and the dead. And we might say something, because it seems a big important point, that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, and that we are now challenged by the gospel to choose whether we're choosing one or the other, whether we're choosing to follow Jesus Christ or not. Those would be the fundamental points. I don't think I've left out anything that uh, you would say is a, a fundamental point. Uh, but you could certainly enlarge on them because I've just put them as headings. And you would probably want to add to that where all this came from, and it comes from the Bible. And so we would uh, add that we get this from the Scriptures, and that the Bible is the Word of God, and we would want to say it's infallible, or it doesn't have mistakes in it, or it's inerrant, or something like that to say that it's a totally reliable book and that's where we got it all from and if people want to uh, um, refine or challenge what we've been saying then we would all agree to go and see what the Bible said about it. Okay, so that's my first point that we're not disputing the fundamental points of the gospel. What he's saying is 
that there may be things, once we've agreed the gospel, there may be things that we, um, we differ over. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, thank you. So that was point number one. And this is point number two, or what was really a question. Why doesn't he simply teach his way out of it? So here's one believer who only eats lettuces, and here's another believer who eats beef burgers, and here's a believer who has a calendar and thinks that it's very important to follow certain days. Why doesn't Paul just say, wrong, right, right, wrong? He could teach his way through it. And it surprises me in a way that he doesn't. He doesn't do so, although he could say, you're right, you're wrong, you're wrong on this, but right on that, and you're completely up the spout. He could say that, but he doesn't. And I think the reason is that he is tackling underlying principles. In other words, there is something more important to, for the churches of Jesus Christ to get hold of than whether you eat only lettuce. There are more telling, weighty, valuable, important principles than just the individual issues. And the principles apply to us too. So whether or not we're disputing over being vegetarians or not, there's principles that apply. So let's look at the principles of which I have four. Chapter 14, verse one, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. And the first thing I'd like to bring out is acceptance. There's an important principle, it seems to me, of acceptance, because he says, God has accepted this person. This person has believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore, God has accepted them. And the word to accept means to take to oneself. Uh, as it were, you might like to think of it, to hold hands with. So here is somebody and God has accepted them. God said, hold my hand. I'm holding your hand, you hold my hand. God's accepted them. They're holding hands with God. And what Paul is saying is, okay, this is the church. It's the church of people who are holding hands with God. Why can't you hold hands with each other? Why do you say, oh, no, 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 when God has accepted this person? And if you think of all the people that God has held hands with, the woman at the well, the woman at the well, the, man, the woman who'd had five husbands and the, and the man she was living with at that moment was not her husband, she was accepted. And God said, yeah, my dear, I hold hands with you. Well, would we accept her? Uh, think of Rahab the prostitute. 
I think of Rahab the prostitute. Now, she, when she heard in the days of Joshua about what God was doing, uh, things changed in her life. But she still goes down in, in, uh, in the story as Rahab the prostitute. So you're sitting at the church lunch, you're saying, and um, what do you do for a living? Well, you could see how embarrassing the, um, the conversation might go on from there. But God said, well, no, here's a woman who's turned to me. She's put her hand in my hand, and I'm not ashamed of her. I've accepted her. So you accept one another. You think of the thief on the cross. Even It was just in those very last moments of his life, wasn't it? That uh, I think quite possibly he'd been making fun of Jesus too, but that a, a, a point came where he said, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. This man has done nothing wrong. Speaking of Jesus. And saying to Jesus, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus saying to him, you got it. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It was just that interchange, just those few seconds where the man put his hand into the hand of the Almighty and the Almighty grabbed his hand and held it tight, said, I got you, I've got you. God accepted him and if he was in the congregation, we'd have to accept him too. Or think of Paul. We think Paul's a very fine chap because he wrote quite a bit of the Bible. But I don't know whether we quite remember his background. He was uh, sort of, as it were, in charge of the secret police. He was, you know, in, part, in, in charge of the Stasi, going around and knocking on Christians' doors and hauling them out and, uh, and pressurizing them to, uh, to relinquish their faith. He was, uh, as he would have said, he was the ultimate Orthodox Jew and yet there came a time when he was on his way to arrest some more Christians that the Lord said, you're not doing that anymore. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, Saul was reduced to nothing. And Saul of Tarsus, the Orthodox Jew, realized how wrong he was and how he was forgiven for all that he'd done and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Such a radical thing that, to begin with, people thought he was pretending and that he was a spy. But God accepted him, and if Paul were here, we should accept him too. And we could add Matthew the tax collector, we could add all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds and who would come into the congregation with all sorts of history and all sorts of things that they'd done wrong and thought wrong and learned wrong and perhaps still needed to unlearn and perhaps still needed to unlearn. And God has accepted them and Paul says, well, why can't you accept them? Why can't you accept one another? Accept him whose faith is weak, verse 1. God has accepted him, verse 3. 15, verse 7, accept one another. And Paul says, and don't just accept them so that you can sit down next to them at lunch and ask them why they're still doing such and such. Don't accept them uh, with, accept without passing judgment on disputable matters. 
quite an interesting and very, it's a very radical thought, isn't it? You'd think, Paul, you're always on about getting things right. But Paul says, well, you know, accept one another, but it's not just so you can have a constant debate and constantly being getting at one another. Principle number one then, acceptance. I don't think Paul is saying you can't therefore have a sensible conversation about vegetarianism or whatever it is, but have that conversation in the context that we've accepted one another anyway. Principle number two, liberty. As we go on then, verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers or judges one day more sacred than another, or just more than another. Another man considers or judges every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's a very surprising thing for Paul to say. Each one should be fully or fully convinced or full in his own mind. So I think this second principle is a principle of liberty to allow other people the space to have their own consciences on these less important matters. Let each be full, it's a sort of full word rather than a convinced word, but the word mind is a mind word. Let, let, let him be uh, fully, fully happy, fully content in his own mind. Isn't that an interesting thing for him to say? So he's not saying you should avoid having a view on whatever it is that other Christians may have a different view on. He's not saying you don't have a view on it. So you might well have a view on what songs you like singing, or you might well have a view on which version of the Bible you prefer, or you might well have a view on homeschooling, or you might well have a view on party politics. Have a view, says Paul, be fully convinced in your own mind he says, but you must allow other people to be fully convinced in their own minds too. Do you see the point there? Let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. It's a surprising thing to say, but what he, the only way he can make this work is to allow liberty in these matters. And we have to find a way of having liberty so that we can work together. So for example, on a sort of trivial example with songs, somebody will say, well, I like such and such songs. Somebody will say, well, I like such and such songs. And somebody else will say, well, I like such and such songs. Well, we have to share, we have to take turns. We have to do, we have to, uh, in a spirit of, com uh, of love, sing along when it's a song you don't particularly like because you know somebody else likes it and uh, the other person has to cheerfully sing along when it's one that they didn't particularly like, uh, and we have to work it all together. Be convinced in your own mind, but allow people the liberty to be convinced in their mind. Does that make sense? It's an interesting principle, isn't it? Principle number three, a principle of motive. And I'm coming along to verse four where he says to his own master he stands or falls and he is able to make him stand and verse six he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord he who eats meat eats to the Lord for he gives thanks to God 
and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Now, I'm trying to pick out one thought at this. I'll pick out another one in a moment. It seems to me that what he's saying here is that there's a judgment to be made, and he's certainly going to say that. We'll look at that in a moment. But in making this judgment, motive matters. You know how he kept on emphasizing if somebody has such and such a day, it's to the Lord. That's why they're doing it. If somebody eats meat, they're doing it to the Lord. They give thanks to God. If somebody doesn't eat meat, they're doing it to the Lord. And he seems to be saying that this is an important thing. For whom is this being done? To whom is this being done? Somebody is making a decision about whether they're vegetarian or not. He says, well, why are they doing it? That's really a very important thing. And somebody is uh, eating meat. They're not bothered about the vegetarian stuff. Why are they doing that? That's very important. What is their motive? Because notice his assumption here that true Christianity, without doubt, and without exception, is lived to the Lord. That's a very radical statement, isn't it? He doesn't have any time for Christians who are sort of half-time Christians. So they they worry about what the Lord thinks really only on Saturday night when they're getting ready for church and Sunday morning uh, when we're in there in church. He says, I don't have any time for that because that's not being a Christian. Being a Christian, whether we live or die, it's to the Lord. When we're in the office, it's to the Lord. When we're planning our finances, it's to the Lord. When, we, uh, when we're having our, our social time, it's to the Lord. When we're uh, doing our studies, it's to the Lord. When we're sitting our exams, it's to the Lord. When we're going to the doctors, it's to the Lord, and so on. Everything is to the Lord. He says we don't live to ourselves, verse seven. None of us lives to himself. We live to the Lord. So he says, you know, that's what what we're agreeing on this. And so I pause to say, is that true of us? It's worth a thought, isn't it? That's why I thought we should stop when we were singing, Lord, be my vision. Because Paul assumes that that's the case for every Christian. You could look at that person and say, whatever they're doing, I can be confident of this. They're doing it for the Lord's sake. They're doing it with the Lord in mind. They're doing it conscious that the Lord is watching. There was a Latin expression, quorum Deo, which I think means before the Lord. And it was said about Calvin, the theologian, that one of the great things he was conscious of was that he lived and studied and taught quorum Deo, everything in the sight of the Lord. And then I say that God seems to find this important even more important than whether we've got everything right. Even if we are mistaken in detail, even if God's saying, actually, 
I don't really care whether you eat lettuces or not. Um, but you're doing it for me, so I value that. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's done to the Lord. Here's an example. Imagine you, uh, you are a parent, and some of you are and have been parents, and your little child brings to you a picture which is a red scroll with uh, handles like, uh, like, like the handles of a mug sticking out on each side and a, uh, a blue blur in the middle and two black dots on it. And you think, what on earth is this? And the little child says, here you are, mummy. It's a picture of you. And you think, well, I could, I could actually write quite a long list of details in which this picture is not entirely uh, a good representation. But you don't do that because you look at the motive, don't you? So even, you know, they tried their best. They did try their best, and it was honestly done out of love for mummy, and that makes all the difference. And I think Paul is saying that in many ways, we, even in our grown-upness and even in our sophistication, what we try to do for the Lord, he sort of looks like that. Well, you know, they tried their best. They probably didn't realize all the imperfections in what they were doing, but they did it for me. And they've offered it for me, and that means it's a special thing. And I think what he's saying is, just have a little bit of that when you think of other Christians. So motive matters. That was my third principle. And my fourth principle is this principle, which he's coming to, of judgment. He's mentioned this already, verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? And in verse 9, he gets onto this, for this reason Christ died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Why then do you judge your brother? Actually, there's been quite a bit of judging going on. Uh, the word condemn is in verse 3, is the word judge. The word in verse 4 is to judge one another's servant. The word consider in verse 5 is a judgment word. You judge one day more than another, and people judge every day alike. So there's a lot of judging things going on, and, and in the nature of it, there has to be. But he says, the judge is God. It's an interesting point he's making. God is the fair judge. God is the fair judge. And the way it seems to me is that he's saying that the judge weighs up. He makes an assessment and he weighs up everything. And the living God, when he judges, does put everything fairly into account in a way that we're not even capable of doing on ourselves. So the judge weighs the deed and he weighs the motive and he weighs what has gone before. So for example, for some people, it's not a big thing to be um, honest with money because that's, what, that's the advantage they've had in their bring, upbringing. They've never learnt anything else. They've never seen anything else. They've got all sorts of advantages 
And it might be the same thing, you know, in terms of sexual morality. They've never known any other thing than a, what we might say a, a traditional morality, which fits in very well with a Christian morality. But the, the judge weighs up the advantages and then he weighs up the disadvantages. And he says, you know what this child has been through as they've grown up to be an adult? Can you see why they've done the things that they do? Can you see why they think the way they do? I can weigh up, says the living God, I can weigh up not only the advantages, but the disadvantages. And I can weigh up, the, the judge says, whether you find things easy or difficult. Some people find, you know, for example, uh, speaking up an easy thing. They do it all the time. Some people would die rather than speak up. And then when it comes to Christian witness, uh, Perhaps the person who finds it easy to speak finds it easy to speak in Christian witness. And then the other person who finds it difficult to speak up might find it difficult to speak in Christian witness. And the judge will take that into account. And the judge will take into account the circumstances. Uh, I think um, C.S. Lewis comments, I can't remember it now, he, on, on differ, different ethical decisions that people might make which might be influenced quite a lot by whether they've had a lot of sleep last night or whether they've got a stomach ache or whatever it is. All these circumstances all add up and you know the Lord sees all that stuff but we don't. We only look on the outside. We don't see what's been going on before, during and after, do we? And the point is that the Lord is the judge. Why do you, uh, verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give a word, an account of himself to God. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. He says, you're not the judge, God is the judge. And there's a very real sense in which it is not our job to think, or even begin to think, we can categorize other people in judgment. That's God's job. I'd like to look at Matthew 25, if I may. And there's a parable there, the parable of the talents, in Matthew 25, verse 14 in which different servants are given different amounts of money and left to do something with them. And the master comes back and finds out what these different servants have done with their different amounts of money. So they're different. And in Matthew 25, verse 19, after a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents, that's five coins, had made five more and brought them and master he said you've entrusted me with five talents see I've gained five more now notice that the master does an accounting he says okay I gave you five and you've made five more and he congratulates the servant well done good and faithful servant you had that particular advantage that, those particular gifts you've done that with them well done Verse 22. So there's a man who's got less advantage, less gifts, man with two talents. And he comes and he says, Master, you've entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. Well, that's different, isn't it? And the master has assessed that. 
It's not exactly the same, it's different. But he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What I want you to notice is that the judge gets an account from each of these different uh, believers. It's not condemnation, it is a beneficial assessment. We, when, so when Paul says we will all stand before God's judgment seat, each of us will give an account of himself to God, I don't want anybody to go away thinking, oh dear, before I heard this sermon and read this passage, I was looking forward to the coming of Christ and now I'm going to be ashamed. It's not meant to be like that. It's, if you like, the different things that the Lord will see in every different believer's life in which you'll say, well done for that, or well done for that, or well done for that, and he will know and understand and with fairness and with fatherly goodness, as each of us gives an account, he will say, well done, in a different way. Uh, there are degrees of reward, but I hasten to say for the believer, there is, chapter 8, verse 1, no condemnation. For the believer, there is no condemnation. So, how much condemnation is there for the believer on the day of judgment? None. That's a very important point. But Paul is saying, God is the judge, and he is the actual judge, not us. And that's his point, isn't it? We're not to be judgmental. We're not to be looking down and saying, well, this Christian is, is nothing but a such and such, and they're always they're of that sort of type. And we need to deal with each other wisely. We can form provisional judgments. We can say, well, such and such a person is uh, mature. Growing, such and such a person is reliable. Such and such a person in all Christian love and honesty has a lot to learn. Such and such a person has a lot to unlearn. So probably not a good idea to, um, to tell them to lock up uh, at the end of the service because they'll probably forget. Things like that. We can assess gifts. Now that's fair enough. That's part and parcel of the Christian life and we're supposed to do that. But he says, don't be judging one another. Don't be writing one another off. Don't be putting one another down. Don't be reducing one another to say, well, she's nothing but her. He's nothing but her. Because Christians are never nothing but a troublemaker, nothing but a attention seeker, nothing but a whatever. They're a Christian, they're a Christian. There's someone whom God has embraced. There's someone whom God has accepted. So here are, the, here are the points that we've looked at so far. Number one, acceptance. God has held out his hand to this person, so why can't you hold out your hand? Liberty. There are disputable matters let each one be assured in their own mind. If it's a fundamental matter, that's different. If it's, if it's a, a less important matter, there's certainly room for discussion, 
but discussion with liberty. Motive matters. You may have a very different view of which political party to vote for, but you're doing it for the Lord, and so is so-and-so else doing it for the Lord. And judgment. God is the one who judges. He takes everything into account in the way that we can't possibly do. His is the right to judge, not us. Accept one another without passing judgment on disputable matters. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing together. I'll just remind you that if you're um, involved in helping out next Saturday, that uh, please meet with Maria.